Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello, and welcome back to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Vanity Fair staff writer Chris Murphy. Chris, hello. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> uh, glad you're here. Um, so today we're covering three episodes. Super Pumped, Episode 5, The Charm Offensive. The Dropout, Episode 7, Heroes. And We Crashed, Episode 5, Hustle Harder. Later on in the episode, we'll hear my interview with We Crashed creators Drew Crivello and Lee Eisenberg, who will talk about the moral questions of the show and some particular plot beats of Episode 5. As ever, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, whatever, as you listen along, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So to start off, Chris, I, I want to ask you, as someone with an acting background, oh, uh, for a little performance review of all the many actors scattered across these three shows, who is working for you best? Oh, wow. That is an incredible, incredible question. And um, yes, I did get a theater minor in college, which has been... <laughs> oh, so well, my major beats you then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe you should be answering this question. Um, I have to say that I'm really impressed by both Anne Hathaway and Amanda Seyfried. Mother, daughter, and Les Mis are both doing amazing work, and I think they could very well be sort of facing each other um, when the Emmys roll around and sort of lead actress in a miniseries category. I really do think 
they're finding ways to humanize these sort of, given the way the stories have sort of transpired, maybe unlikable women or women who do things or who are a part of things that we've discovered are, you know, maybe not as savory as, as they were purported to be. So I would have to, I'd have to give it to the ladies. I'd have to give it to Amanda Seyfried. I'd have to give it to Anne Hathaway. See, this is why we have you on. I had not made that lay connection until just now, until you made it, it for me. Cosette That's and so Fantine. <laughs> yeah. Minors are good for something. Good for something. <laughs> there you go. Mm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on Hathaway. And I think that this episode of We Crashed um, is obviously a really big Rebecca episode. Um, mm-hmm. You know, something you'll hear in the interview with uh, Cravello and Eisenberg um, about how they kind of did that characterization is that they don't. They they all they recognize that when you know kind of building the show, having listened to the podcast, that like Rebecca is as equal a lead as Adam is, and I think that this episode really bears out kind of why that thinking is, um, because we see Rebecca moving or to, or you know really pushing her way more to the center of the company that she feels left out of. Um, so yeah. I I I think that obviously that the core tension of the episode it's actually most things in life do revolves around a vanity fair photo shoot I think we can both <laughs> I'm so, agree <laughs> i'm so happy to be here for the vanity fair episode I'm like, i I'm know awesome. it's a very media heavy uh kind of run of it all three of these episodes actually Kismet. yeah <laughs> yeah um so what did you make of how this episode of we crashed kind of tracks rebecca's psychology from you know finding her office is being used the implication being she's never there uh, all the way to basically forcing Alicia out of the uh, company. Um, did, did that all kind of track for you? Yeah, and it was actually pretty tragic. It was like sort of like a mini movie amongst all of the um, chaos of WeWork that I think was the most compelling. Um, like you said in last week's podcast with Hillary, I think it for all of Rebecca's faults, it was really her friendship with uh, Alicia um, was really sweet. It was actually really kind of lovely to see her have something that was her own and her own friend and her own identity apart from we work apart from Adam and to see her completely blow that up <laughs> because of her own issues with her own ego and her own worth um, was, was tough. It was, it was um, it, it actually, you know, emotionally affected me. And I thought, and, and America Ferrer, who we have to say is a national treasure. She is so lovely on the show. I'm like sad that we might not see more of her now. Um, I do think they really sort of show, even in the space of two episodes, like the rise and fall of their relationship um, and and Rebecca just completely destroying it because of her own ego um, was affecting to me. Yeah, America Ferrer is great. Um, I, I hope that she comes, that Alicia comes back for one like big kiss off scene. I mean, she kind of already got it in this episode. Yeah. Mm, the the so line good. of like, you worry he outshines you because you don't have any shine of your own or whatever. I mean, that's, that is the perfectly most devastating thing you could say to Rebecca Newman. Oh, 100%. It, uh, it was 100% the most devastating thing. I also will say, I got to give it up for Anne. I've never seen somebody cry into napkins like <laughs> to like not get their mascara in that way to not ruin their mascara before a Vanity Fair shoot. And so all of that, that one-two punch, uh, it really hit home for me because it's I, to be in so many shadows at once. You've got Adam's shadow, you've got WeWork's shadow, you've got Gwyneth Paltrow's shadow. It has to be difficult, and I do have empathy for that. Yeah, I think that's what's so shrewd about the way that the show's written and the way it's that Hathaway performs it, is that even though you see Rebecca really you know vain gloriously just bulldozing her way through people 
I still feel bad for her. Like, I still have a degree of empathy for her, which is a tricky thing to do, especially when you see her earlier in the episode literally fire a person from his livelihood because of, you know, quote, bad energy. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I actually, I have a question for you. Do you, knowing how we sort of like treated Anne Hathaway as a society 10 years ago in the, in the Les Mis um, era, it's hard not to sort of like track like that sort of the, the sympathy and the empathy that I now have for Anne Hathaway, given how terrible we all were to her on to Rebecca. I feel like the casting there just is already like already that gives Rebecca an emotional core that I'm like, oh, like I'm already feeling somewhat empathetic to her. Yeah, no, I think there is uh, a, a a real life parallel there. You know, um, I think that, you know, we saw way back in the early, uh, I think it was the first or sec- second episode of, of, of this show, you know, where Rebecca is still kind of pursuing her acting dreams. Like only a from childhood theater kid like Anne Hathaway could get exactly that desperation. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. And it was that accent work is, uh, is, was chef's kiss. Yeah. But we you know, then we kind of, we do see that sort of, that there's sort of a sweetness to that sort of just unbridled ambition that now has very much curdled by um, this point in the, the we work story. Um, and, you know, Rebecca Newman is still, I think, on the scene to some extent and they they obviously walked away from we crash with a lot of money but i think this at least in the contained world of this show the contained story of this show this is the beginning of her downfall because now you can't keep firing people for bad energy and not yeah. have people turn against you she kind of already had righted that ship earlier when they were at summer camp and she said the thing about oh, it's a woman's job to support men she kind of got out of that okay yeah but i think there's no return from this oh absolutely and for firing people for, you know, eating food, you know, putting food on your like pig statue in your office. That was like, I was like, oh, she's really lost the plot. And she's sort of um, hungry. She's hungry for and it's not even power, but for a space of her own. And I can in the literal I think it was so well done with like, the literal people entering her space and taking over her space and her feeling so small. I think Alicia says this. You're small. Um, was It's just really really well done and really articulated. I keep with actually this show and the dropout, which we'll get to. It's like, I keep coming back to this Macbeth lady Macbeth narrative and the genders are switched in each show, which is so interesting to me. And in, in, uh, we crashed. Rebecca is, is, is lady Macbeth, but she's not even good at it really is the problem. And I think that's sort of, that's where we get this, you know, firing all these people. I want to be in vanity fair. I don't want to be amused. I want to be, a game changer. I want to be a maverick. I want to be a magician. I want to make some change. Um, yeah. And, and it's interesting how she and Adam interact with one another in this episode. A lot of it's over the phone um, mm. because he's busy traveling to Tokyo and around the world, um, signing new leases and dealing with, um, you know, his, his biggest new investor. Um, and, and she becomes in a way, one of the chorus of nattering voices. Who's just kind of bothering him obviously she's his wife and so he has to pay more special attention to her when you know with the time 100 thing but then that goes south um and then we get to this point where she's like kind of micromanaging the company um you know i i I think there's nothing wrong with sort of making that you know let's go vegan initiative but the way that he treats it um is just like okay okay fine just please stop stop complaining he's not really hearing her yeah, and it feels like honestly he had bigger issues at that point, which are yeah. only gonna, which are only gonna sort of uh, spiral more out of control. 
Um, but exactly. She was nagging. She literally became the embodiment of like the nagging wife sort of like in his ear. Meh, meh, meh. And he gave her, you know, he did the vegan thing to sort of shut her up effectively. And it feels like he took he gave her the chief branding job for the exact same reason. I think the show did a really good job of sort of showing that like it wasn't because she, you know, had earned it or she was, you know, so vital to the soul of the company. But it was like, OK, like she's annoying me. This is a really good way to keep her happy. And I think we see in further episodes later on, no spoilers, he continues to give her things to sort of sate her and to be like, you play with your toys in the corner while I do my big boy job and sort of keep this whole thing afloat, even though the ship is sinking. And I mean, do you think in in the way that this show is mapping the psychology of these characters, do you think Rebecca kind of knows that? Oh, 100 percent. And I think that's why Anne Hathaway's performance is so fantastic, along with the voice, along with I feel like she has somehow made her face longer. It's my boyfriend and I, when we're watching it, we're like, how is Anne Hathaway's face longer than it's ever been before? It's perfect for the character. But <laughs> to answer your question, I do think she's like acutely aware of this fact, which is why she's constantly saying, you know, what's their line about? Um, we were elevating the consciousness of the world. She has to hold on to these little mantras to sort of keep the actual sounds of in her head of I'm actually not vital to this operation i'm actually not you know important to the soul of the company and my husband is treating me like uh, like i'm a nag and like i'm a child and like i you know i don't have any space here i think that's the beauty of Anne's performance for sure yeah i, I like when she you know earlier in the episode alicia it kind of rolls her eyes at raising the consciousness of the or elevating the consciousness of the world and then later on when she's essentially firing her she's like a chief branding officer for this company should know that their mission, you know, she's like, I know you just made fun of it, but I actually believe this or maybe kind of, she is telling herself she believes it. And I mean, honestly, Alicia's right. It means nothing, but do do the thing is, I do believe that Rebecca believes it to be true. Like I do believe that she thinks that that's her purpose and that she is elevating the, the soul of the nation of the country of the, we work, whatever that, you know, her line is. Um, but even more so than her believing in sort of the woo-woo stuff, she knows that she's not a factor. She is amused. She is a plaything. She is the mother. She's the wife. But she's not the she's not the star. She's not, and she wants to be the star. And that's where Vanity Fair comes in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's where the theater kid comes in. You know, it's yeah. all it really everything can be sourced back to whenever the first time we all saw Our Town or whatever it was. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, Ab- it absolutely always comes back. It always comes back to that. Maybe rent. I don't know. Um, well, now that we've talked about Anne Hathaway and Rebecca Mer- uh, Rebecca Newman and all that, let's cut to my interview with Drew Cravello and Lee Eisenberg, who had more to say about that character specifically this episode and the show as a whole i'm alex schwartz i'm nomi fry i'm vincent cunningham and this is critics at large a new yorker podcast for the culturally curious each week we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love books movies television music art and i always want to talk about celebrity gossip too of course what are you guys excited to cover in the next few months there's a new uh, translation of the Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. 
don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Well, I have the pleasure uh, now of being on the line with the creators of We Crashed, Drew Cravello and Lee Eisenberg. Hello to you both. Hello to you. Hi there. So, um... I, I, if you guys aren't aware, um, on this podcast, we're covering We Crashed, The Dropout, and Super Pumped, which are all different approaches to these kind of, I guess you could call them downfalls of of, of entrepreneurs or, you know, unicorns, uh, as your opening credits suggest. Um, and something I really, really love about your show is that it's about a business, um, but it's really a human story, but with these two people at the center. Um, and I'm curious... Uh, if either either of you have a, a an answer for this, like what was the origin of that specific approach to this material? Because you could go really granular and focus on the the business side, which the show does, but um, there's all this other emotional component. So I'm just curious about um, how you guys made that determination. Sure. Do you want to start? Sure. Um, so you know, it began with um, with the podcast. Um, Wondery had sent Lee the podcast. And then, uh, and he flipped for it and then he shared it with me and really it just, it was sort of like we were kind of peeling back layers of this onion where as we did more research and as we kind of learned more about WeWork beyond what we had just seen in the headlines, we just sort of found these two fascinating people at the, at the sort of center of it all. Right. And Every time we started delving into the more granular business story, it always felt less interesting than the dynamics as we sort of imagined them between Adam and Rebecca. So there was just, you know, in, in, in Adam's own kind of origin myth or foundation myth of this company, he talks about how if not for Rebecca, no, we work would never have happened. And we wholeheartedly agree so like there's just this like center of gravity to that love story that kept pulling us back. And just and you know the one thing I would add to it is that it felt the more that we dug into it it wasn't like it didn't feel like a choice that we were making narratively as storytellers it felt that the way the only way to tell the story of we work to, to to tell the story of we work and really focus on Adam and then have Rebecca as someone that he comes home to after work would be dishonest. Rebecca's so intrinsic to the creation of the company and was there at every kind of key moment. And I think in many ways infused, infused we work with this kind of yoga babble that, you know, became so much of the the language um, and the ethos of the company that not having her in it and not having that love story at the center of it just didn't, it, it felt like we were, we would, we would be mistelling the story. Something that's so beguiling about, um, the early episodes uh, is, uh, you know, I, I I went in having read a lot about um, the Newmans and in, including in Vanity Fair, and I expected to kind of hate them at the outset. But there are these moments with Adam and Rebecca where they're so deeply sympathetic. I mean, I think Rebecca's sympathetic. Adam is sort of perversely charming. You know, I, <laughs> how did you guys balance that sort of empathy that I think this show has in abundance with the more critical aspects of who these people uh, are and, and what they did. Well, I guess from the outset, Lee and I, and then um, Jared and Annie, when they kind of came aboard, we had no interest in doing kind of 
caricatures, right? Or kind of just like an easy kind of finger wagging morality tale. Um, so we kind of really wanted to get to the human beings at the head, at the center of the story. That was just more dramatically inter- interesting to us. So I guess that was really, you know, a, as a way to avoid caricature, that's just what led us to just trying to figure out and learn who they were. And as we kind of explored their real life backstories, you can't help but de- but, to, but to develop empathy for people when you sort of learn a little bit more about them. So I think it was that. It was the process of writing involved the process of kind of learning who they were and therefore developing empathy. I think we also tried our best to show through the employees what the consequences of their actions were. So it was both not reducing them to caricatures, but at the same time, kind of balancing that with some accountability of, okay, well, they actually, people did suffer because of, because of this. Lee, I'm curious, do you think that how much of this utopian vision did Adam actually believe in? Was it a whole hundred percent of him really thought that he was going to change the world or was that the marketing pitch? You know, that it's funny. It's funny you ask that because that was something that Drew and I talked about from the outset and was kind of posing that question. And it's been interesting now that people finally been able to see the show. You know, people say to us, you know, oh, was it clearly he was a con man. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people feel like that's the narrative. And Drew and I have our own takeaways from it. But, you know, what was interesting to us is is having a show that lives in the gray. And is he a visionary or is he a cynic? And is he kind of weaponizing, you know, this kind of uh, the yoga babble and uh, millennial optimism, um, you know, in order to make a buck? Or was he someone who really did want to change the world? and that's something that's open for debate. And, you know, that it, it was something that was interesting, interesting to us as storytellers to kind of lay things out and then have the audience draw their own conclusions and debate about it. Uh, there's that scene. I think it's an episode two where Adam is at. Is it J.P. Morgan? Morgan Stanley? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the big banks. And he's doing a sort of fireside chat for the employees. And he goes on this monologue that I think is really, at least in my interpretation, what the sort of inquiry at the heart of the show is which is like what was this ethos around the late you know aughts into the 2010s of like overhauling life maybe starting with with aesthetic but then kind of broadening it out i mean you know instagram culture i mean a culture really has an aesthetic culture sprung up uh you know on social media and then it kind of bled into the real world we work as a big product of that i think um did in making this show did it help you clarify the decade plus that we've just lived through, uh, you know, because it, it, it's helping me sort of understand what culture in America just experienced. You know, one of our writers said something that really stuck with us in the early days of the writer's room. Uh, she said, in many ways, like this time period, and we work specifically, like it felt like the death of the millennial dream. And, and that was like such a kind of striking way to describe it. and. I think for her and and she as a millennial, like she felt very much this graduating from college. There was this notion that you could, you know, as Adam says, like change the world and kind of, you know, make a lot of money doing it. And that maybe that's not always true, you know, and I think there was this kind of, um, you know, this idealism that was sort of paired with 
kind of greed and other things. And, and I think sometimes was preyed upon by some of the people that were sort of recruiting millennials. So uh, anyway, that was, we kind of routinely refer to this as a sort of the end of the millennial dream, this kind of time period. It, it does feel a little apocalyptic in that way, you know, um, because it, it achieves this zenith of co-working and, you know, parties after at the end of the day and, 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 and all the neon signs. And it, it feels so familiar and yet suddenly distant. I, maybe COVID helped that. I, I, I don't know. But um, it's a really striking tone. And then you also zero in uh, from the, the, the grander summation into these personal lives. Uh, and I'm curious, Lee, like how much I mean, obviously, there's a ton of source material about these two people written podcast form, all, all kinds of things. Um, but some of this had to have been invented. I mean, I don't know, you know, did Rebecca really ghost into a crazy accent during a Chekhov production? I'm not sure. So can you talk a little bit about how you balance the fact in the in the fiction you kind of necessarily had to create to fill things out? Sure. You know, Jared Leto, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal from him for a moment. He he has said, um, you know, this is a painting. Uh, this is a painting, not a photograph. And I, and I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, we, Drew and I read everything uh, that, you know, could possibly exist on Adam and Rebecca. We've listened to every interview. Uh, we've read two books, podcasts, you know, every YouTube video that they have where, you know, they're talking. We spoke to friends of theirs. We spoke to former employees. We spoke to investors. You know, we really, we, we, we did our research on this. And, you know, to pull off something like this, a dramatic portrayal, you can never know what was actually said with Adam and Rebecca in their bedroom. And, that's okay. You know, that's part, part of, part of our job as storytellers is, is to fill in those gaps. And there are plenty of things that we, we heard rumblings of that we didn't include that I think were, you know, could have been salacious or uh, could have painted them in a different light. And ultimately we, we, that wasn't the story that we wanted to tell. And, you know, and we weren't looking, this wasn't meant to be a hit piece. We wanted to create three-dimensional characters where you're rooting for them at times, you're, you're frustrated with them at times. And that was the key. And, you know, within that, you have to you, you're 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 taking all the information that's given to you and then you try to build characters from that. And you want those characters to be dimensionalized. And, yeah, there's definitely some creation that goes on with it. But again, we felt like we had spoken to enough people that we were really we, we felt like we had a good sense of who Adam and Rebecca are. And now that the show has come out, we've spoken to people that know them personally and do feel like it was a, a fair portrayal. And that's that's what we hope. Like I said, it wasn't. There was, we never set out to say, oh, we're going to destroy these people. And nor did we say we want to kind of put them on a, you know, put them on a pedestal and, and, and laud them. And the one thing I would add to that, Richard, if I may, is that, yeah, like even with that, that scene you mentioned where she kind of puts on the, the, the Russian accent, you know, that scene gets a laugh. Right. And. But that, in our opinion, the more important scene is actually the one that comes afterward where she breaks down in the staircase. Mm -hmm. So even that is sort of an example of like, it's not just the caricature or the kind of, you know, the easy shots. It's how are, are we trying to portray the sort of person at the heart of it? And, and that that scene in the staircase then leads to another really telling scene for Rebecca, where, you know, she meets again with the uh, director played by Julie White. And she's just very blithe about, oh, we're going to lose the space. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> like she she's remaking herself over and over and over again and not necessarily conscious of who is kind of collateral damage in that, um, which I think is very telling. Um, in episode four, Rebecca meets uh, Alicia, uh, played by America Ferrara, 
um, in a scene that I have to ask, Drew, it reminded me of a certain viral tweet about someone showing up to a party in a costume. <laughs> and I'm wondering, I'm referring to the Duke tweet, Katie Dippel, um, you know, because Rebecca shows up full Navi in the blue <laughs> and no one else is that dressed up. I'm curious, where did that scene was, was, was did, did personal life inform art in this case? Maybe subconsciously, maybe subconsciously. Okay. Uh, in, in actuality, Rebecca did, in fact, go as a Navi to a party, which, oh which we had a, a photograph of. And it was just one of those things we came across where we just said, OK, we have to work this in the show somewhere. Um, so, yeah. So if art's imitating life, it's uh, it's just kind of uh, it's serendipity. Um, but, Richard, I actually do want to return to one thing that you just said, which I thought was very, very insightful, which is. Rebecca kind of throwing herself from identity kind of into these different identities. And that was something that when Annie first came aboard, that was like one of her kind of key insights is just this person kind of so desperately searching for their place in life and so desperately searching for their thing that she kind of takes on and discards, you know, these various identities, but does so with like such reckless abandon that like you can't help but worry for her, right? Like, you know, it's not going to lead to a good place. So I just thought you're, yeah, that was a, I think that was a kind of a keen insight that, that really informed her character for us. And sorry, one, uh, just to add one thing on that too, you know, Adam and Rebecca are both incredibly self-involved and they leave a wake of destruction in their path. And that's just the beginning of it. So you see in this thing that she just kind of, as you said, she kind of blindly just says, oh yeah, we'll figure, you know, oh, maybe. And then she walks out of the room there's a real consequence of that. They, they had a space in the, in, you know, in this area where all of a sudden Julie White's character and all these actors had, you know, had booked shows and everything like that. And then this woman just kind of throws it away. And, and, you know, what, what happens to those actors and, and, and to Julie White's character, you know, in the wake, in, in, in the aftermath of that. And you see that, that's just the beginning of it. And as, as the show goes on, you see all of these moments where Adam and Rebecca's actions and, and, and often selfish behavior, there's real consequences to other people. And somehow they, they manage to kind of remain above the fray, but all these other people are, are dealing with their, uh, with, you know, the fallout. Yeah. And I, and I think in, in episode five specifically, we see another fallout of that kind of reckless reinvention um, with the Alicia character. Um, and you know, because I guess it, the, the, these times with YouTube stars and social media stars like personhood is a brand and Rebecca, she meets with a brand consultant and she's trying to figure that equation out. And then Alicia kind of becomes the victim of that. Uh, I'm curious about the particular psychology of this arc between these two you know, new friends. Um, did did Rebecca kind of seek to destroy this person deliberately out of envy or, or was this just another kind of like, oops, I wasn't, you know, collateral damage kind of situation. Um, gosh, you know, it's so interesting. It, I think, um, I do not think that she set out to destroy anyone. I think that in the kind of, you know, in this kind of hole that couldn't be filled, like seeing like when once these titles became something that like that were kind of valuable or desirable to her, I think it just I'm going to take them kind of regardless of the collateral damage. So I think it was uh, I don't I think it was like 
sometimes she herself didn't even realize what she was doing, which is part of the danger of someone like that. And 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 just to add to it, I mean, I think that if you look at uh, Rebecca's character, this is someone who wanted to be an actress and is living in the shadow of Gwyneth Paltrow, who, you know, for so much of her formative years is, uh, you know, Rebecca's watching as she wins an Oscar, as she dates the biggest movie stars in the world. She's at Cannes. She, you know, she's living the life that she wants. And what does that feel like when your first cousin is, is living the life that, you, that you've always dreamed of? And then ultimately that doesn't work out for her. And I think that Rebecca is someone who kind of moved, you know, she studied yoga. She went to India and studied under the Dalai Lama. She was someone who was always searching and looking and then kind of, you know, reinserts herself into, into WeWork in a bigger way. And as a result of that, I don't think, I agree. I don't think that it was something, uh, you know, conscious that she was doing where she kind of set her, set her sights on Alicia to take her out. But I think that she was trying to find her place and trying to assert her value. Also in episode five, you know, you see that on the red carpet, Adam is the star. And Rebecca, again, is on the sidelines watching as someone else is is getting all the credit and all the adulation. The same the same thing is in episode two at the end at that Morgan at that J.P. Morgan um, conference that you mentioned. She had just you know, she just quit acting. And Miguel says uh, some people just have it. And he's a star. And you see Rebecca is watching as, you know, as Bruce Dunleavy and all these people are kind of uh, lauding Adam. And I mean, I think Anne Hathaway's performance in those final moments of episode two is just riveting. I mean, it's it's silent. And her face, I think her face, uh, you know, has 14 different emotions on it within, you know, the span of two seconds. You know what? One thing I do want to circle back to, Richard, is just because I don't think some of Rebecca's behavior was conscious or consciously malicious it doesn't mean it's not terribly dangerous right like yeah. in the real world accounts of how she would fire people for bad energy mm. right like i think she possessed she seemed to us to possess this power of self delusion such that she became convinced of her worldview and it kind of allowed her to do anything even as something as compre- as capricious as to kind of toss people aside, to end their careers and their livelihoods over something as as laughable, as ridiculous as having bad energy. So I think, you know, it can be subconscious or sublimated or not malicious, quote unquote, but still terribly dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, from from documentaries that, that have come out or, or, you know, all the other material about WeWork, um, it, it's clear that there was something really dark happening at the center of this. And, and and I think what's so potent about that uh, is that it, it, it came from something kind of idealistic in some sense. You know, uh, let's you know, I want you all to know what it was like to grow up in a kibbutz and, you know, sort of in this collectivist utopia. And I don't know, I guess my question about Adam and how, how you two decided to characterize him is, do you think there is a version of him and WeWork or something similar to it that would have worked, you know, in like a, the, the slightest different alternate dimension you know or was this was this inevitably doomed no matter how you approach it adam's a ticking time bomb he's always going to kind of destroy as he goes well i mean i think that adam is someone uh it was nothing nothing was ever enough for him i mean the idea of someone talking about uh wanting to be president of the world and not wanting to be a billionaire wanting to be a trillionaire 
there were never going to be enough. You know, they talked about, you know, he talked about having a WeWork on Mars. Uh, you know, it, there was never, the world wasn't big enough for him. Is there, I, I think that the idea of WeWork, uh, WeWork and, you know, having spent time inside of them was a great one. I think it makes a lot of sense, particularly for freelancers. The space was beautiful. It was comfortable. Um, there was there was a community aspect to it. I think that the company grew way faster than it than it could, than it was capable of uh, of doing. And in a lot of ways, you know, getting the four point four billion dollars from Massa is was the worst thing that could have ever. You, know, you think, oh well, an infusion of so much money like this. Now you're going to move on to you know uh, even greater successes. But I think in fact, the four point four billion dollars in Massa saying you're not crazy enough. That's the worst thing that ever happened to Adam Newman. That's the worst thing that ever happened to WeWork. WeWork is a great idea that had it grown organically, probably could have been you know worth several hundred million dollars, maybe you know a few billion dollars, and that would have been great. But as a result of growing at the at the rate that they did, you know they're opening locations that you know the front doors don't work. They have inoperable toilets. Like there's just no way to kind of to pull off what they wanted at the speed that they attempted to do it at the scale that they at the, that they did. And have it be successful. So I think that that ultimately, that was the problem. Like when you, when you look at these VCs, you know, the win is not that you take a company that's valued at a billion dollars and turn it into a company that's valued at $3 billion and you three exit. The, you know, the success is when you have a billion dollar company and you turn it into a, you know, you know, $130 billion company. And, you know, we, we reference Alibaba and, and Masa, Masa's success with that. And I can't, I can't remember what his, you know, how much he made off of it, but it's like, it was like a 32,000 X, you know what I mean? And so if that's, it was, right. yeah, seven, yeah, it's like 7,500 X. 7,500 X. So if, that, if that's the goal that you're going for, no one's ever going to achieve that. That's a, that's a once in a century success. And if you, if you tried to do that for every company, that's how you have companies implode the way that we worked it. Yeah. I mean, that's a gilded age stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Richard, totally. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Not only is it gilded age stuff, it's like, I think, for people who think, for, I think, you know, for those who think that we weren't quite hard enough on Adam and Rebecca, right? I guess our, I guess a counter would be, it, it, I think it sort of lets too many people off the hook if you just choose to vilify these two individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Like the more kind of blame you heap just on their shoulders, the more blame you sort of, you know, you, uh, let others kind of escape. So for example, Adam takes Masa on a tour for 12 minutes, right? And Masa invests $4 billion, right? And you said, oh, was Adam destined to fail? Like, it's not just that Adam convinced someone to give him $4 billion in 12 minutes. What does it say that someone gave essentially a stranger $4 billion after 12 minutes, right? And sure, they had done their due diligence and they looked at their, you know, I'm sure they looked at their financials, but like there is this kind of cowboy recklessness to some of that investment that it's not just Adam or Rebecca or the people taking the money. It's who's giving them the money. There's something addictive about it, you know, uh, and I think that in, in, in Leto's performance and in your writing, it, it Adam is, and Rebecca to an extent, you know, is this kind of magnetic figure who you might be skeptical of, but you kind of want to believe that he's on to something and even just that little kernel of hope um, can lead you to write that check, I guess, you know, um, and you're right that like they couldn't have done this alone. Um, so I, I guess my next question for you guys would be like, 
I this word has been thrown around a lot. I don't know where I fall on it, but like, was this a cult? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Yeah, I think that the people that work there, I think they really did. Adam was messianic and he was a cult leader and he stood up on stage and people lauded him and there were there were chants and so many so many of the things, so many of the um kind of the telltale signs of uh of people being brainwashed uh did exist within the WeWork culture. It's the it's it's late nights, it's it's lack of sleep, it's drinking, it's a messianic figure at the center. You know, it's an ethos about changing the world. All of those things you could you could apply directly to something like Nexium. Um, and when you you know, I was funny. We were I watched the Nexium documentary. You know, while we were making the show, and you you started seeing a lot of the a lot of the similarities. It's you know the summer camp thing. You're taking people away from their families. They're you know they're gone for the weekend, and and there's a little bit of an indoctrination. And the people that we spoke to you know, a lot of times that these were their first jobs out of college. They, there's no context. You know, if you're 45 and you'd worked at five different places and they're, you know, now people are insisting you have to work, you know, drink till three in the morning. And, you know, we're encouraging people to stay late at work and all that stuff. You'd say, no, I don't need to do that. I I'm comfortable. You know, I, I have a family, but these people, you know, the people who were working at these companies, a lot of them ended up uh, living at we lives and, you know, so you, you kind of, the world becomes insular and your friends are your coworkers. And there's something that sounds very appealing about that. But as you get older, it's like, no, I need, I need to decompress from this. I need, I need yeah. a life beyond it. And I, I think in a lot of ways it was very similar to a cult. Yeah. I mean, I can relate. I, I um, started my media career at Gawker in 2007 oh, yeah. and I was there for on and off for four years and we were, I wasn't living at the office, thank God. But like, there, I spent all of my time with my coworkers socially. You know, it was a, even though a lot of us were working from home uh, most of the time. Like, it, it it is intoxicating. You know, um, when you feel like you're on the vanguard of something, and um, you know, it's so I, I I don't I certainly don't blame these young people who took this exciting job. Um, but there is just kind of this general aura of like not, complicity might not be the exact right word, but something close to that where it's like the the Newmans just like I said didn't do this by themselves. And by the way, like in some ways, like it's what Adam did. It's kind of crazier than a cult in the sense that in a cult, you're usually talking about, you know, sort of existential issues of like, you know, and sort of spirituality and salvation. He made people believe this stuff about co-working space. That's what Lee and I always came back to that, like all this talk about changing the world and elevating the world's consciousness, like he wasn't even selling salvation. He was selling co-working space with kombucha. Yeah. Well, he says something in that. I think it's in the first episode when he goes to speak to the students at Baruch, you know, just just to let you know, no one's going to tell you this, but like you're going to spend the rest of your life chasing this feeling. And I don't I think I'm old enough now that I don't pine for the college days. But like that kind of bummed me out for a while. <laughs> and I can see, you know, recent graduates being like, let's do it again, you know, and, and indefinitely this time. There's no four year cap on this experience. Um I get it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we listened to Real Adam and when we, you know, we took a lot, we took a lot of, uh, you know, we pulled a lot of dialogue directly from his mouth. There really are compelling uh, ideas underneath it. And that's something that's something that makes it more complicated. You know, that again, going back to whether or not he's a con man or a visionary, either way, you're falling under the spell of it. I have friends that are brilliant that have invested in, you know, had great success as investors 
and they got tours of WeWork early on and they were like, yep, that was, that was amazing. It was really incredible. And he was really able to kind of uh, cast a spell on people and really get people to believe in something, even when there wasn't a lot, you know, the money wasn't behind it. Well, I think that we're able to talk about all this stuff uh, in, in sort of these nuanced terms is, is testament to the, the great work that you two have done. Um, the show is so emotionally interesting and, you know, it's this reflective piece about, you know, like I said, like what we've just all lived through, the end of the millennial dream, all that. Um, so I really thank you for the show and I thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for talking to you. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Chris. So um, let's switch over to the dropout now. Heroes. I I think I know who the heroes of this episode are, but I'm curious. Do you think it's referring to the reporters or the whistleblowers, or what do you think the title is in reference to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and I think everyone sort of thinks like Elizabeth Holmes, and so they think they're the heroes, even though they sort of deep down know there's a villains. But and I do think it's re- uh, referring to the uh, whistleblowers and the reporters and and whatnot. Um, but I, and I also, this is sort of a, uh, a third option or someone who I really think was actually sort of the hero. One of the heroes of the episode was uh, George Schultz's wife, the, st- the step grandmother, um, saving Tyler Schultz in that heated debate, um, in the negotiations and sort of giving him an out and sort of being a sense, like a, um, force of reason and, and saving her step grandson, um, from that terrible situation. And then you have Phyllis Gardner. There's so many different um so many different heroes but at least that that to me really stood out and i was like oh that's what i was like oh that's the title of that episode for me yeah and and these are all people charlotte schultz uh played by the great ann archer um Mm. who are it's really refreshing seven episodes in to see not just people who are directly involved with the company but who um are at least aware of its what it's doing from a distance be like well this is this all really sounds like bullshit like the the whole thing the worm has turned like like the it's the writing is on the wall um elizabeth might not know it yet but like someone like charlotte is like no we need to like get out of this yes you know? we need the house is on fire we have to get out like she gets it she gets it and like george schultz it, he he too is either too old or too proud to see that and is willing to sacrifice his own grandson to the Theranos, you know, gods just to, you know, be right, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely too proud. Um, you know, when Tyler says to him, like, so don't you see that she's lying? She lied to you about what I was going to be signing today, you know, and, and George had been willing to, like, have the lawyer, uh, Linda, h- hiding in the house somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that he could then be like, surprise, here she is. And then she comes with a whole different list of demands and things to sign than, than, than George had been aware, made aware of. And yet even that doesn't convince him because, again, he can't at this this juncture, this not just monetary investment, but like but investment of his professional reputation. He can't admit that he was so grievously wrong. 
Oh my goodness. I will say I would love to have Michaela Watkins just hiding in my house. You know, it would be really <laughs> wonderful. So that's not a bad thing. But no, I mean, I think it's so correct. And honestly, there's a parallel to sort of SoftBank and we crashed and Mal, you know, and that sort of like the benefactor who is given so much. I mean, in that case, it's, you know, $4.4 billion. In this case, it's, you know, George Schultz's stamp of approval and now is in too deep and refuses to can't just say, oops, oopsies. <laughs> like he just he's not going to say that, like, oopsies, I made a mistake. He like he will go down with the ship, even if that means sacrificing his grandson. And that was a pretty erring. I thought I mean, there were two big negotiation scenes in this episode that were both wonderful. The Wall Street Journal scene with, you know, uh, and with uh, Theranos lawyers and then also the Tyler Schultz, George Schultz, Linda of it all. And I, I thought they were both really well done and really excellent. Yeah, the scene with the, the Wall Street Journal with John Carreyhew and um, I, th- I believe a fictional editor um, called Judith Baker, um, where they leave that meeting and they're like, oh, we just got it. Like they just told us, like confirmed that these these machines aren't running these tests. Um, that scene is so fascinating because I can't quite tell. And maybe you you have thoughts on this, like. Does does the Theranos side of things realize they just completely screwed themselves over in that moment? Well, it's so funny because I, I I I thought about this too because I didn't even feel like they got it when they were like we got it. I was like, did 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 you get it? Like I'm, right. I'm like I'm still nervous. I don't feel like that was such like a slam duck, you know, uh, hit out of the park, so to speak. And given that, I also think that Theranos. Well, I think with Theranos, there's so much to hide. There are so many things that were <laughs> um, terrible about their, you know, their science and their business practices and whatnot that by, uh, I don't think they realize in that moment by giving them that little sliver of, you know, that one piece, that one domino that the rest would fall in the way that they did. I think there was just, you know, when there's, you know, uh, a million things that are wrong, you give them one, you think, OK, I got at least I have nine hundred ninety nine thousand <laughs> that are still hidden. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think is really helpful about this episode. And now that we're bringing in these outside observers from the Wall Street Journal or other places who are like kind of, um, you know, condensing all of the many wrong things that Theranos is doing into really legible form, like throughout this season, even though it's really well plotted, it's 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 easy to follow. But you do kind of get lost in what exactly was a lie and how much were they actually doing. And this episode really snaps snapped me back into clarity of like, oh, no, the whole thing is like nothing. They are not doing anything that they say they're doing. Yeah. Every single thing is wrong or broken and and terrible. And it's yeah, it did. Yeah, it made it crystal clear in a very, as you said, legible way. Um, And I will say the editor comedic goal best comedic moment of the season her, her bam 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 her stabbing fish metaphor uh, with john carrier was really really fantastic so we even got some laughs yeah no that 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 scene mm-hmm. is great with the sicilian fisherman um i would yeah. fully watch a whole series where lisa gay hamilton is the steely editor of a newspaper uh <laughs> because she's doing a lot with like a small kind of functionary role um, absolutely yeah it's it's really i mean the show is so well cast you know really from top to bottom um any episode that has Lisa Gay Hamilton and Ann Archer and Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, stalwart actresses. We love. We love to see it, and they all do great work. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mentioned Laurie Metcalf, who plays Phyllis Gardner. Um, that is quite a striking scene right there at the very end of the episode, where Phyllis finally gets to say her piece. And I think, you know, through her, the show is making a broader point about um, one of the small, one of the many things that um, Elizabeth Holmes's scam. Uh, did harm to which is that like 
how now can any woman say that she's being on the up and up that like, how will anyone believe her because of you? And then I think Phyllis says it was, it was never just about you, you know? And um, in that moment, I think, do you think that gets through to Elizabeth in any meaningful way? Well, in a similar way to what we said about Anne and sort of like the emotional core and sort of having, and having some moments of vulnerability where you do sort of feel like, Oh, you feel, I don't want to say bad, but you have empathy for that character. I do think that that broke through to Elizabeth, or at least in Amanda Seyfried's wonderful performance, her taking that information. I did feel a sense of like profound disappointment because, you know, five episodes ago or seven episodes ago, I should say, um, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, looking up to Phyllis Gardner, you know, and, and asking Phyllis Gardner for help. And so I think there was, there was a sort of a, uh, you could feel that like well of respect and at least from uh, Elizabeth Holmes side being like, Oh wow, look at us. We're both here together. We're equals. We're the same. I've done it. You've done it. And sort of wanting that mutual admiration. And for Laurie Metcalf brilliant lead uh, to as Phyllis Gardner to just completely sever that tie and say, not only are we not girlies or not only are we not in the same place, you have now ruined things for a whole swath of women that I do think struck an emotional chord with Elizabeth Holmes as played by Amanda Seyfried. And it did for me as well. Yeah. I think in that scene, you also, I mean, throughout this episode, you realize, um, and I think that Elizabeth is realizing it to some extent, like how really isolated she is because so much of her life exists in a lie. And that really the only true person she has in some ways is Sonny. Mm. Um, but that relationship is so complicated and fraught and you know they're playing a weird game of hide and seek in their huge mansion (laughs) that i don't think either of them seem to like you know it's just like and 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 then you know you have uh in the scene with um george and tyler and and linda and charlotte like where he says when he when george is surprised that these new documents have presented themselves and tyler is supposed to sign them and he's like did sunny put you up to this so like even Elizabeth's closest allies don't like Sonny, but that's oh. all she has. You know, it's I, it's sad it, almost. It, it's really sad. And I will say, uh, I mean, Naveen Andrews, he, uh, wonderful. He's doing such great work and it, it, he's really fantastic in the role. And I will say, like, not, I mean, this is a, a total separate thing, but I also, you know, have empathy for Sonny, like George Schultz, you know, his, his distaste for Sonny um, definitely seems to come from somewhat of an you're an other, you're not in the boys club, you're, you know, a brown man. It seems to come, at least it reads to me, it's somewhat racial and, and Sonny knows that. And that's been a sort of a through line. You know, we have that scene a couple episodes before when he gets stopped at the airport. So that is a through line. And I will say, as messed up as it as this is, I do believe their love story in a weird way. I think because of exactly what you said, they're the only people in the world that have each other, right? They're the only people that know exactly sort of all the levels of depravity that they've sort of sunk to to get as high as they've, you know, soared. Um, So I do feel this sort of like real affection between Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny in the show that, that makes it all the more complicated and complex in terms of, you know, their, their relationship. I, I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's just that kind of like, uh, you know, foxhole bonding where they're like, we're the only people who really know how much we're lying, you know, and they don't even say we don't see them say it to each other that much. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a couple episodes ago where Elizabeth's like, OK, we're going to run it on the Siemens machines, but we'll you know, we're just this is just early phases like it's OK, it's OK. And that's the extent to which we've seen her and Sonny kind of collude 
together. Um, but they are doing it, whether it's spoken or not. And yeah. um, in that, that that's like that's the truest bond that Elizabeth can have because she Sonny's the only person who really knows uh, what she's up to. Yeah, and he's yeah. I mean, I I I won't go back to Macbeth, but it's like his his Lady Macbeth is actually running the show. It is actually making things happen and is yelling at people and is and is doing what sort of needs you know quote unquote needs to be done to make Theranos successful by hook or by crook by any means necessary. I mean, and to see him run after it was a, such a great moment at, at the beginning of the episode when. Linda Michaela Watkins like speed walks into Elizabeth's office to be like, hey, like Mark has downloaded all these emails and now he's leaving the building. And she, Elizabeth Holmes, completely freezes. She does not do anything or say anything. She's stuck in that moment. And it's Sonny who jumps into the action into action and is like, we've got to go get him. I'm going to run. I'm going to chase him and scream at him. And we're going to sue his ass to kingdom come. So I just think like that sort of like as much as Elizabeth Holmes is the face of the company and is the boss and is the, you know, is the girl boss of the world. Sonny is the one who springs into action. Who's like sort of makes decisions when the pressure is on. Which is why toward the end of the episode, we, uh, it's so chilling when she and Sonny are disagreeing and she says, I'm the CEO. I don't read all my emails. Basically saying like, I have, I'm, I have like an out, like I, you're the one who's really hands on with this, you know? (laughs) And you try, you start to think, like, was that part of her strategy somehow? You know, because we see in the real world when these things, um, you know, I think Sonny Balwani's trial is starting soon, if it hasn't already. Um, obviously, Holmes has, has concluded with four uh, guilty verdicts. Um, w- they both kind of, you know, to to use reality show parlance, threw each other under the bus. You know, oh, yeah, they, they I didn't know the anything. Buck. It was all them, it, you know. And then here in this episode, we see uh, Elizabeth kind of threatening him and and laying that 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 subtle groundwork of like you know that like if push push came to shove like i'm so busy like how can i be expected to read all these emails but like there's more record of you having read and engaged with this stuff than than me and i think that puts a little i mean a big dent in this picture of a very albeit tortured but like still loving relationship yeah i mean the veiled threats of it all are are so palpable you can feel that tension and you can feel and you can feel that Sonny has, you know, Sonny then goes like one step above her and is like, look, like you think I love you so much that I would just take the fall for you for this. That's not how it is. Like, that's that's not how it's going to go down, sweetie. Like, it really is. It's wild. I do. I do want to say I would like to go back to sort of the beginning of the episode. Something that something that I think was so well done is sort of like the interstitials of Elizabeth Holmes talking to Biden and, you know, Charlie Rose. That was a jump scare. Definitely Bill Clinton. Um all of these sort of, you know, luminaries and also these sort of, we got to say it, old white men um, about her like massive success as we're sort of seeing these things fall to pieces. And it did sort of remind me of in a really, which is in a, uh, a really great, but sort of sad episode of television in Cheer season two with Jerry Harris, who, you know, been convicted of um, multiple crimes against children, how they, that episode began with him his ascent, him talking to Oprah and Biden and a lot of the same people that Elizabeth Holmes was talking to in sort of a similar way of these scammers sort of excelling to the highest heights of our society, all while there's this insidious underbelly that sort of, you know, the the, the floor is gone, you know? Um, so I just thought that was a really, uh, really well done sort of montage to sort of set us up for, you know, we're one episode out, the fall is happening. Yeah, and it's just a reminder of how bogglingly far she got with this lie. Like, how yeah. many people she ensnared in this. And, like, you know, uh, one one specter looming over this episode is Rupert Murdoch, um, 
<laughs> who you know w- was going to be it was an investor in Theranos at some point, and um, who she asked to have the, the John Carreyou story killed, you know, um, and she, you know she comes home having met him at some function, it, you know, leading up to this weird game of hide and seek in the in the the mansion, and and that's like she's so excited about it. It's like oh, oh I'm I you know I met Rupert Murdoch tonight, and it's like that is her stand-in for friend or or ally or something. It's like, I met this powerful old white guy. Um, and therefore I must not be alone. I am doing something. The lie is not going to be found out because how, how could it be if I keep having access to these people? Um, Totally, exactly. I, I will say too, it's funny, both We Crashed and The Dropout, Time Galas <laughs> made it, the, yeah. time, the Time Gala made it, made it big. So maybe, you know, when those Time 100 lists come out, we should just, you know, give it a once over, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before uh, we publish. Uh, so we are, you know, like you mentioned, this is the penultimate episode of The Dropout. Sadly, we only have one more left. Um, what do you hope for the finale where do you hope it ends? Like, I mean, I don't think we're going to see the trial, but but maybe we will. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about how you think this story should end, at least in the TV version of it? Yeah, I mean, I as much as I would love to see the trial, um, I don't think that's the story that this show is telling. Like, I don't think that's where we should end up going. And I would I don't want to see sort of like a truncated, like, you know, best of version of that. Like, I, I think that's it's probably better to steer clear. Um, of that but i do need to see right i would like to see um elizabeth sort of come to terms uh, have a reckoning have a big reckoning moment which i think you can't get out of trial because of the trial she's saying you know i didn't do it i didn't i didn't do it i didn't do it i'd much rather see her you know have this moment of like oh i have done so much more harm than i have done good even if my intentions were pure even if i you know am a smart woman or you know and you know had a a good if impossible idea i need i need that reckoning moment and i do think we'll get it and i think amanda will deliver a wonderful performance um yeah i guess does that make sense it does yeah no i I think that like if they were to show a little bit of the trial it runs the risk of being like a house of gucci ending where it's like oh and by the way she went to trial for murder and was convicted and a uh, movie over you know and you're like yeah. okay wait a second show a lot more of that or none of it because this doesn't really work yeah exactly yeah i mean it, yeah exactly i would let yeah so i'm like let's just not do that it, you know because i don't think we have the time or the space to do that um, and also, I will say as well with Elizabeth Holmes, I want every person involved in Theranos. I want Sonny to have this moment. I want George Schultz to have this moment, even though apparently, I don't know if he ever did have that moment. I want Linda. I want all of these people to sort of reckon with the fact that not only did they get got, you know, by like the media and, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal and whatnot, but also that they did like serious harm to lots of people. Yeah. In that way, I kind of hope it ends on like Erica chung or you know one of these whistleblowers kind of having a moment of like you know because she and she and tyler shelter still like i think friends and and still work together they started an initiative um about like ethics and tech i think um so maybe that would be a sort to 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 maybe prove phyllis a little bit wrong uh that like women in this space can you know elizabeth didn't ruin it for everybody um Mm. but i don't know if maybe the show is not quite so optimistic but Um, so lastly, we should turn to Super Pumped, uh, <laughs> which is another very media heavy episode. 
this episode, The Charm Offensive, is really about Kalanick trying to convince not the public necessarily, but certainly the press, um, that he's not a monster. I mean, he literally says that. Um, at this very strange dinner yeah. uh, in New York with um, Michael Wolf, uh, the you know sort of famed Smith, media reporter, and then Ben Smith, who's the surprise yeah. <laughs> BuzzFeed guy who's no longer, he's at the Times now. Um, you know, you, you work in media, same as me. Did you, did any did this seem credible to you that this this I, kind of thing would have happened? I mean, not, not to sort of show my cards, but I certainly have not been invited to like a, <laughs> a, a fancy dinner in a basement with a tech CEO. Um, but I guess that's not my beat. Um, I guess, yeah, it sort of didn't strike me as as credible. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm I'm, I'm sure it did, or maybe it, it potentially did. Um, but it felt really sort of random and it seemed like so clearly a bad idea and like especially then once ben smith sits down there it's like you you'd like to go through with it and then you know um joseph gordon levitt's like you know freak out after it once it becomes clear that you know information was divulged it was like really i, it, I found myself saying really a lot <laughs> during that whole sequence yeah, and 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 it's this elaborate thing, you know, organized by the the, the PR team, and they're it's an interesting way that the episode is structured because they're pointed toward that, they're pointed toward big media, the traditional stuff, and then we have Susan Fowler, who mm-hmm. is starts to write the blog that really a lot of people credit with um, taking down Kalanick in the end because she wrote this really, you know thorough thing about all of the the sexual harassment that she had experienced that her female coworkers had experienced and that's not where anyone you know from the uber side of things at that dinner is looking you know and it's just like how can you at the cutting edge of tech not understand that someone can write a blog post and it can be as effective as i don't know charming michael wolf or even ben <laughs> smith can be yeah i mean i found i think that's so well played and i found that susan fowler um played by ava victor is a great comedian and actress um I found that element of the show or th- those scenes to be way more sort of interesting and sort of, um, if, uh, I don't know, just, yeah, interesting and just sort of better to me than the, you know, secret dinner party of it all. Um, because it did sort of show very sort of point by point, like how the culture sort of devolved very quickly over time. I mean, the culture was never really set up for women, but it showed sort of like all of the sort of vignettes. Um, uh, I thought it, that was pretty well executed and and compelling and as you said like that's the thing that's going to blow up the you know somebody you know inside the company saying like hey this company sucks for women i feel like why were yeah how did they miss that why were they not paying attention to that and you know travis is cognizant that women at the office are having issues but he he doesn't treat it because i mean i think it speaks to his inherent disrespect for women in general he doesn't treat it as something that could be of consequence you know He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think that's what's so satisfying about the Susan Fowler stuff in this episode is that we have spent now you know, so many hours with Travis and watching him be a complete asshole and bulldoze through people and kind of come out on top most times. Mm-hmm. And then we have, you know, this side story about this woman who is going to do serious harm to his reputation and his position at the company. And we have uh, Travis doing this sort of hat in hand please sir like me with tim cook from apple yeah who's a gay man you know and really is not really he he, travis's shtick does not work on tim cook at all 
And that's really satisfying to watch after so many hours of seeing it work with other people. Yeah, that was great. That was very like, you know, Velma Kelly in an act of desperation is what I thought during that sort of like <laughs> that uh, tete-a-tete between, um, you know, uh, Travis and Tim Cook. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, I that was quite satisfying when he was like, guess what? Steve Jobs, you asked me if I knew Steve Jobs. Yeah, I didn't know Steve Jobs and he wouldn't like you at all. Like, and that, that was really wonderful. And I do think sort of my problem with Super Pumped, and I, I don't know if I'm the first to say this or whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, we've got all these scammer shows coming out and whatnot. And with each scammer show, I, I do think, you know, not all scammers are created equal and not all scammers are as charismatic or as interesting characters as, you know, as the other. And I do think like with, you know, Jared Leto's Adam Newman, say what you want. Like that, that is an interesting character. That is a charismatic sort of interesting person. And you're, you're seeing that on screen in We Crash. Elizabeth Holmes, like she is an interesting character of a woman, you know, a, a study of a woman, right? With, with super pumped, even inventing Anna, like she's a sort of, you know, more of a sociopath to me, but like she was interesting, at least to me. With him, with super pumped, I just feel like I'm watching just like some like asshole in a sweater, being an asshole in a sweater. And I don't find, <laughs> I don't know, I, I don't find it to be nearly as compelling because. I find there to be like no there there with the sky and seeing Tim Cook say that was great. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I, maybe uh, to be generous to the show, I guess, like maybe that's part of the deliberate structure of it, which is like, we're going to give you a lot of this guy working. And then he, then, you know, episode five or whatever, he's going to find the limit of that. And yeah. it's not just a limit in terms of like uh, a peer. This is someone who really wields a lot of power over him. And um, it's 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 very satisfying to watch. And I think that the way that the scene with Tim or the scenes kind of sewn throughout the episode with um, with Tim Cook are, are, are written and, and, and performed like, you know, Hank Azaria is playing Tim Cook as you know very quiet, sort of, you know, folksy. He's from the south. He's from Alabama. Um, and, and he's not being mean to Travis. You know, his his, his lieutenant is being like when, when Travis starts to say the gay thing, his, his lieutenant's like, stop right there. You know, yeah. so there is an uh, some air of antagonism in the room, but it's not coming from Tim Cook until the very end when he says the thing, you know, the sort of you're no Jack Kennedy kind of thing about yeah. Steve Jobs and says, oh, by the way, the China thing isn't happening. So yeah. well, goodbye. <laughs> you know, like he, he it's a it's a it's a it's a much more deft and skillful way to be a sort of you know, corporate warrior than Travis does, which is just to like bellow and, you know, thrash and all that stuff. And Tim Cook is like, no, you can be kind of the quiet assassin, which I just did. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you'd think that Travis would maybe get out of his own way and learn something from that interaction to what just happened to him. And like, that clearly doesn't happen when you see him, you know, throughout the episode, you know, screaming at his PR people for like mistakes that like were sort of ultimately his fault for, you know, the dinner going awry, you know? So it's just it it was quite it's so funny i'm so glad that you said that was hank azaria because i kept being like who is that and i didn't look it up but wow hank azaria he was wonderful um but yeah i i do um agree that that uh travis's you know assholeish nature that that written into the that being written into sort of the the, the soup of the show it's important I mean, it's to the point where it's going to be so juicy to just watch him realize that he's screwed, you know, like, um, yeah. and he look, he, I think he's still on the Uber board. Like he's not, he wasn't like sent out into the wilderness, but he is going to lose control of the company, which, um, I think we're all eagerly anticipating. Yeah. Um, well, I think that just about wraps it up. Um, I want to jump back to We Crash really quick before we leave Chris and ask you a vital question about our times. 
when was the last time you thought about the Harlem Shake meme? Because we do see that briefly in uh, in We Crash with the monkey mask and everything. Oh my goodness! Well, Richard, you you're you're gonna sort of reveal something about my age. I was in college when the Harlem Shake meme sort of oh. was a big thing, and I hated it so much that I wrote an essay in our literary magazine about how it was stupid and appropriative and bad and erasing the actual Harlem Shake dance that originated in Harlem and is a real dance in black culture. So actually, I I have a lot of feelings about the Harlem Shake. Well, I was going to ask you what you want to plug, but I think you just did. I think people (laughs) need to go find this essay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the Nassau Weekly. Please look it up. (laughs) Um, Where where, where can people find you other than the Nassau Weekly, uh, Twitter, whatnot? Yeah, okay, good. Definitely. If not there, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. It's the same handle at Christress, um, like distress or mistress, you know. Um, yeah, and that's and at vanityfair.com, of course. Great. Well, you can find me at vf.com as well. And I'm on Twitter uh, as Rylaws. Uh, as ever, this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And until next week, happy investing. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.